Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Amy, get your TV red carpet ready with Control Center by Cavo. All right, this is the best way that you can clean up all that remote clutter. Do you have like one remote for your TV, one for your stereo, one for your DVD player? Forget all that. Get the one universal remote that does it all. Just say what you want because you can even talk to the Cavo remote. You can talk to it. You finally have a friend. You're not on the couch by yourself. You're there with your Cavo. The Control Center will take you to whatever you want to watch. Shop just in time for the Oscars and get 40% off Control Center with a promo code UNSPOOLED. That's promo code UNSPOOLED. Control Center is available at Cavo, C-A-A-V-O.com. And Best Buy, Control Center by Cavo, one remote that does it all. Today's episode is also brought to you by Mubi. Okay, what's Mubi? Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. I love this service because it takes the guesswork out of what to watch. Every day they present a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a thought-provoking doc, or an acclaimed masterpiece. There are always 30 perfectly curated films to discover on Mubi. It's so great because we're overwhelmed by choices. Mubi takes it out. They do the quality control. Try Mubi for free for 30 days at M. Mubi.com slash unspooled. That's Mubi.com slash unspooled. That's Mubi.com slash unspooled for a whole month of great cinema for free. It's 2018. You called, we answered. It's time for Listener's Picks. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we normally watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how they have influenced the films that we watch now. But the last two weeks, we've taken a break from that to do a very special miniseries to kind of reflect on the films of 2018. Over the last two weeks, Amy and I have really gotten into like over 40 films. It's been very intense. Yes. And I also feel more prepared for the Academy Awards or any awards now because I've watched a shitload of these movies, but I'm a little bit tired of just hearing our voices. 
I know. I'm always sick of hearing our voices. It's like blah, 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 blah. Exactly. We want someone else to take the heat for their opinions for once. <laughs> Indeed. And you know what? It makes sense because there are three things that seem to be what gets a film onto the AFI Top 100 list. Week one, we looked at box office because money matters. Week two, we looked at critical opinion because sometimes hoity-toity folks like us, we're right. And three, <laughs> there is the whole segment of films that were built up by the public, like, say, It's a Wonderful Life, films that didn't get great reviews, didn't get a ton of money, and yet in the court of public opinion, they win. So that's what today is about. So we reached out to a bunch of our friends from different backgrounds. We have Academy Award-nominated writers. We have directors. We have actors. We have critics. Uh, we have professional funny people. Yeah, we have a bunch of people calling today to tell you what their favorite movie of 2018 is, plus some of the listeners as well. We're going to try to cover uh, some films that we haven't talked about yet and revisit some of the more popular films this week. But I think you're going to be in store for a good time as we have a great, like, a sincerely great lineup of people. I, I'm, I'm very excited to reveal this all. They're pretty cool. They're pretty uh, cool. Amy, let's get into it. <laughs> Amy, it's still 2018. Law & Order SUV is still on the air. Katy Perry and Taylor Swift haven't gotten into another feud yet. Justin Bieber and Haley Baldwin got married. Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson broke off their engagement. Oh no, even though Ariana got a hit with Thank You Next. The Queen of Soul, a.k.a. Aretha Franklin, passed away. And the Winter Olympic Games were held in South Korea, made stars of Adam Rippon, Chloe Kim, and many other world-class athletes. And probably the biggest news story of all, the audio clip that caused rifts between friends, families, and coworkers, Yanni or Laurel. Wow. I'm really digging at the bottom of the 2018 <laughs> barrel here. It's been three weeks to recap 2018, and that's where we're at. Where it starts off with Law & Order is still on the air. That's something you can say for the last 20 years, I feel like. I was just waiting for you to go to like, and the number one hit song was Baby Shark. <laughs> <laughs> I love Baby Shark. I know you love Baby Shark. Thanks, you have Baby Shark in my head all the time. Um, well, Amy, let's get into it. Last week, we talked about critical favorites, and you and I were a little bit uh, critical of a handful of films. And let's maybe revisit our opinions about these films through a phone call from our first caller. All right, Larry, our first caller that we have lined up is the beloved Ira Madison III. You guys know him as at Ira on Twitter. He's the host of Keep It. He was my coworker at MTV. We shared a moment. We were watching the Oscars together with the cake that said Moonlight, win the whole Moonlight Oh La -la wow. Land You thing. were right there. Yeah, but we were right there with the cake, and then we had the cake ready to celebrate. I just uh, had a cake of Billy Crystal at my Oscar party. <laughs> It was pretty great. <gasps> wow. Uh, and Ira is also writing the new upcoming Netflix show, Daybreak. So let's hear what Ira has to say. Hey, uh, it's Ira calling. Um, I want to suggest something silly like Venom, but I'm not going to do that, even though that's a great movie. Uh, I think if Beale Street Could Talk should be added to the AFI list at some point in the future. It's a beautiful movie that I think people will revisit from time to time after having ignored it in 2018. That's interesting. Amy, do you think that Bill Street didn't get a lot of attention this year? Well, I feel like the attention is being really just focused on Regina King because she's mm -hmm. the best thing, you know, in, in right. the movie. I wonder if Regina King will kind of serve as an anchor for Beale Street in the future for people who maybe I'll like the movie better in the future. Maybe, maybe like it'll get the burnishing that it deserves. Like maybe this is one of those cases where a very awesome, worthy actress winning the prize for this will sort of anchor the film in history. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel that there are certain movies out there that 
upon second viewing, I really love. Like the first time I saw True Grit, I did not like it at all. And then as I watch it again, I was like, oh, I love this movie. It Sometimes movies grow on you. I feel like Kanye albums do that as well. At least old Kanye albums. <laughs> That's true. And you know what? For Ira's sake, I will watch Beale Street again in the future. I will watch it again and I will be ready to watch it again and like really try again to love it because I really want to love it since I've loved Barry Jenkins' career since it started. I love it. All right, let's get into our next call. This is uh, from one of our listeners who also is kind of giving the yin to our yang about Black Klansmen. Hi, guys. This is Ben from Minnesota. And while I totally understand your perspective about Black Klansmen being somewhat manipulative, I believe that it is not only a worthy addition to the next AFI list, but also a much-needed one. Looking through a list that includes Springtime and Yankee Doodle Dandy, both films include Song and Dance Blackface scenes, and a list that includes Gone with the Wind, then combining this with the fact that the 97 list included The Birth of a Nation, I think that the inclusion of Black Klansmen would offer a necessary rebuttal and historical counterpoint to American cinema's often problematic relationship with race. Klansman is number five on my 2018 top ten, so while there are films I liked more this year, it is definitely the one that stood out to me as a good addition to the AFI 100. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Oh, well, thank you for that, Ben. I appreciate that call. I mean, I think that's a really good point. Although, I mean, uh, what makes it complicated is, like, Spike Lee does already have Do the Right Thing on the list, which is also really good, and I wonder if I would want to see, like, many different directors represented. But yeah, I think all of your points were really worthy. You know, I'd also say that there's something about Black Klansmen and thinking about it, because I feel like you and I are a little bit in the, not the wrong, but in the minority. Like, this movie is very much at the the top of mind throughout this award season. And Jordan Peele said something that I thought was really interesting. He said, this is the type of film that can change how people think. Um, and it's also a film that's relevant where we're at with this country. And we need more movies like this. And I feel like maybe... Being in the point of view of someone in Los Angeles, being someone who is a liberal, and seeing this film, it feels to me like, oh, you're just preaching to what I know to be true. And and I don't really take into consideration, like, what about the people that maybe is this is eye-opening to them? Like, I remember talking to a good friend of mine who got out of Scientology after seeing the South Park episode what? of Scientology. Like, literally was a Scientologist, then watched that episode, like, oh my God, and their whole, whole world just kind of what? caved. Yeah. Whoa. You know, you forget this idea that entertainment like this is far-reaching and it's not just to these little bubbles. And I feel like sometimes maybe I lose the effect of something and its meaning because I feel like I'm already there. It's sometimes how I feel about Michael Moore movies. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm I'm here. I get, I'm supporting this. Don't yell at me. But it's not always for me. So that's something to to look at. And it's a movie that I definitely want to revisit. I kind of wonder like, if we're doing like our future, future, future. Hello, mm. we are in, what year are we in? 2050? I forget what year. I like I it. It's like 2050. 2050. We're in 2050. I wonder if in 2050 it will seem meaningful that the film A Black Landsman ended with like modern day footage. Because I remember right. in this year I was like a little easy, a little right. cheap. And I do wonder if it'll seem like a time capsule. Like if we saw a film from the 60s that was on the list right. now that ended with maybe footage of some of the Vietnam War protests in real life or the civil rights sit-in march, would it be like that makes it important because yeah. it's a time capsule? I totally agree with that. Um all right, Amy, let's do something a little bit different right now. Let's actually give someone a call. This is somebody uh, that I'm friends with. He hosts a podcast called Are You Talking R.E.M. 
Remy uh, with Scott Huckerman here on the uh, on the Earwolf Network. He also is one of the stars of Parks and Rec. He was on uh, Big Little Lies on HBO. Just a fantastic actor in one of my favorite films, The Vicious Kind, which I thought was just a, a really underrated good film. Uh, let's give a call to our friend Adam Scott. Barney's Beef and Brita, Ben. This is Adam. Oh, Adam. Hey, uh, this is Paul from... Hello. Uns- Adam, can you hear me? Hello. Uh, I think there's a connection problem. Adam? Hello. Oh, all right, we lost him. All right, well, you know what? We'll, we'll try him back in a little bit. I'm a little hungry now. <laughs> I didn't know he was still working a day job like that, but that's, you know, kind of very Andy Kaufman-esque of him. Yeah, you know, being an actor, it's not consistent work. Well, you know what is a staple industry, Paul? It is journalism. So <laughs> let's hear from Leonard Malton. This is Leonard Malton, and I'm calling in to sing the praises of Armando Iannucci's brilliant comedy, The Death of Stalin, which came out in 2018. I know it's technically British, so it might not get on the AFI list, but it is in the English language, and it is, I think, the best comedy of the year, the best comedy I've seen in ages. What makes it so unusual is that it is an unabashed farce with the underpinning of real-life drama, because it's all about what actually happened after Stalin died and the members of his Politburo vied for power. It's got an incredible cast, Steve Buscemi, Jeffrey Tambor, Michael Palin, Jason Isaacs, uh, the list goes on and on and on. I've seen it twice, and it, it knocked me out both times. And everyone I've talked to says, oh yeah, I heard that was good. Well, instead of hearing it was good, I suggest you see it. And you might put it on a 10 best or a 100 best list too. That's a great call. I mean, I was thinking about Death of Stalin. It's such a hilarious film. I mean, Armando Iannucci, you know, created Veep, uh, and that show is so wonderful. And his other film, In the Loop, equally funny. But I feel like this may be my favorite Armando film. Yeah, it's like the biggest, the craziest, the most maybe cartoonish. And I just... I enjoyed it. I saw it with a midnight movie audience in Austin, Texas, and we were dying. Oh, it's such a good one. And again, not technically eligible for AFI, but all bets are off this week. This is about what you think is good, and we are open to it. So, Leonard, feel no fear. Uh, I love it. Also, I will say, I I don't really usually keep swag often. You know, like as a critic, you get sent a lot of swag, and I I have this anti-clutter thing. But I kept my Death of of Stalin Matryoshka doll swag. Oh, that's Because it's wonderful. And you have Steve Buscemi right on the outside. I love that. But, you know, too, one of the things that Leonard was saying, I like that he called in defending a comedy. Mm Because I feel like comedies get a little bit of short shift definitely at the Oscars. I would say also on the AFI list. Well, we talk about this all the time. Like, that comedies aren't viewed technically as, like, worthwhile films. And I never get that because... They are oftentimes the films besides big action blockbusters that connect with the largest group of people, yet we're saying, no, no, don't look at that. And when it's something like the Marx Brothers, it exists for a long time, but there's so few comedies on the list. I would say maybe, what, like 10 comedies if if we're really pushing yeah, it. Yeah, like pure straight comedy, not even, I don't know, like stuff like Dr. Strangelove, which yeah. is everything, I guess, mostly comedy. It's but it's, but a, it's a, like you it's like it's a comedy with a point and not yeah. just like I am here to make you happy. Well, I, I like that idea we're talking about comedies, and actually one of our listeners called in about another comedy movie that should get on the list. What's your thought on what I think is the best studio comedy of the year, game night, or any other comedy that came out this year? Thanks. 
That's actually a good question. You know, continuing our comedy conversation, I have to say that I think Blockers, directed by Kay Cannon, uh, who is in the 4% of blockbuster films directed by a woman, was one of the best comedies in recent memory. Just a really funny cast and really well done. I loved Blockers. I love Geraldine Viswanathan. I think oh, she's yeah, the she's funniest so ever. And Miles Robbins, who plays her boyfriend in the movie, the, the stoner kid with like yes. the long ponytail. They're so, 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 so funny because comedy performance – is hard. I mean, to Game Night, Jesse Plemons in Game Night, there are a lot of kind of critical rumblings of like, that should be the type of performance we take seriously as, yeah. a, as a supporting actor performance. And yes, totally. Jesse Plemons is so funny in Game Night. Uh, you know, and just to go back to Blockers, I think Ike Barinholtz just does a great job in that. But I also want to just call out somebody who I think gives a consistently great performance uh, in anything that he's in, Gary Cole. Gary Cole has a very funny side game in uh, in Blockers that is good. So if you haven't seen Blockers, definitely check it out. It's a solid film. Oh, also, wait, speaking of Ike Barinholtz, did you see The Oath, that, a movie that he like directed oh, yes, and started in this year? Yeah. I really liked that movie a lot, too, especially the first hour I thought yes. was great. It's really cool and very unexpected, and I like anytime a comedy takes different chances. I, you know, I'm also going to go on the line and say that you know, I really loved your review of I Feel Pretty, the Amy Schumer film. And that was a movie that was really like just destroyed by critics. And I like a romantic comedy. I watched it and I was like, it's pretty good movie. Like I found the chemistry between the two leads to be really fun. And, uh, and I really got behind it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I don't know, uh, you know, sometimes how movies like get a whole kind of culture against it and it's impossible to kind of get out from under it. Yeah, I feel like Twitter was sort of against that movie before anybody really saw it, you mm -hmm. know? And and it was one of those cases where I left the theater and I was like, didn't everybody see the same movie I did? Because I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I really loved that. I'm a sucker for romantic comedies, Amy. I'm there all the time. Uh, and speaking of romantic comedies, you know our next caller from TV shows like Happy Endings and Marry Me. She's also on uh, the Showtime show Black Monday with me. Uh, let's listen to uh, what Casey Wilson has to say about 2018. Hi, Paul. Casey Wilson here, actress, comedian, writer, lover of cinema. The movie I'd like to uh, say was my favorite of 2018 is possibly one no one else is mentioning, which is Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. Now, look, it's a romp. It's fun. It's ridiculous. It's insane. It makes no sense. It's all things. And yet, it will get you, and it's going to get you good. At the end of the movie, spoiler alert, Meryl Streep is passed and comes back from the dead. And she sings a song in all seriousness that is called My Love of My Life. And I bawled so hysterically in it, I had to walk out of the theater. She is on screen for two minutes, and truly, this is said without irony, it's one of the most moving performances of my life, her singing to her daughter. Oh, gosh, I'm crying thinking about it. Um, it's such a fun movie, and um, a few weeks later, a friend was feeling down, and you know what? I went again in the theater, and yeah, I'm really busy, and I have two small children under three. But it makes no sense, again, things will happen that you'll scream out loud because you don't know what's going on. For instance, when Dancing Queen is sung by all extras. Things will happen, but things will also happen to you, and you'll feel things. Bye. Holy moly. I would never have expected that. And now I kind of want to see it. I saw the first Mamma Mia. I got to say, I enjoyed it. 
I know. I mean, that that's a beautiful testament. And as somebody who saw The Greatest Showman in the theater three times, I, I am very much with her. Sometimes a movie just hits you. Yes. And you cannot explain why. And you are just there for the ride. And it, hearing her describe it like that, I mean, it makes Mamma Mia too. That's a good argument for it to be at least the second best movie where Meryl Streep is dead but still comes back to life. <laughs> uh, the first one, of course, being Death Becomes Her. I, uh, I'm i all on board. I now really want to see Mamma Mia 2. Here we go again. I would, it was not even on my radar until just that. Very compelling argument. Thank you, Casey. All right. You know, Amy, and this wasn't the only comedy phone call we got. Actually, someone called in about another movie that uh, we didn't talk about at all. Hey, Amy and Paul. Um one of my favorite movie-going experiences of the year was the simple little movie, A Simple Favor, um, a fun little caper of a movie with great performances by Anna Kendrick, uh, an amazing performance by Blake Lively. I didn't know she could be that good. And Henry Golding. It was just a delightful little movie. Thanks, guys. I love that call. I had so much fun at A Simple fa- like Favor. There is an image from that film that is burned into my brain. Uh, a simple favor, by the way, if for people who haven't seen it, A, go see it. It's Paul Feig. It's this really terrific comedy about, you know, a murder. It's sort of noir It's like a sexy romantic. It's almost like if we had double indemnity movies starring, like, YouTube housewives that existed today. Uh, but there's this moment where Blake Lively is wearing a tuxedo shirt and she just rips off the dickie underneath it. And it made me just think... We need to be better about giving Oscars to modern-day costume designers. We're always like, who's got the most ruffles in the past? Oh, my God, the costumes in A Simple Favor are just – they're like to die for. They're brilliant. Speaking about movies that don't often make the AFI list, I'm thinking about a really popular type of movie right now, which is The Doc. People are eating these – films up so much and i think maybe it's the proliferation of like video on demand like there's a there's a way to get these out to the people in an an easier way and i feel like this year the doc really connected with a lot of people i mean especially huge huge. docs Docs did huge numbers this year a lot of docs i saw at last year's sundance just went on to have like massive success rbg which i still don't get why it's nominated for an oscar but god bless it for making a ton of money well i mean there's one that didn't get nominated for an oscar and I think it's it's a shocking. Well, let's actually hear from uh, an actress that I worked with on a film called Summer 03, available on BOD right now. But you might know her from the hit Netflix film, The Kissing Booth, which was like the biggest Netflix film of all time. She's going to be starring in a brand new uh, mini television event with Patricia Arquette called The Act. And she's also just been in an amazing grouping of movies uh, from playing Ramona and Ramona and Beezus to White House Down and Batman. She's been in everything. Let's hear from Joey King. What's up, guys? I'm Joey King, and my favorite movie of 2018 was the documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor about uh, Fred Rogers. I thought the story had so much heart, and it made me freaking bawl my eyes out. And I think what I loved most about it was hearing Mr. Rogers' own kids talk about him with such love and respect. So knowing that he was the same man at home that he presented himself to be on TV really warmed my heart. He's a man that changed the world, and when he spoke in front of Congress, I just got my eyes were all wet. So, uh, yeah, that was my favorite movie of 2018, and I really wish it had gotten some recognition at the Oscars, but hey, it has recognition in my heart. You know, that movie also got to me. I mean, she talked about that scene. Testifying in front of Congress made me cry. <laughs> like, that's the power of that man. I mean, did you love that film? 
Yeah, I love him. I thought I didn't mm-hmm. love the filmmaking okay. as much as I love just an excuse to sit and watch clips of him. Right. I could sit and watch clips of him all day. I had a hard time probably even separating him from the film because I felt like I was learning so much about him. And I think because it's a doc, I was always waiting for another shoe to drop. Like, and then he beat his children with a leather strap. It never happened. He was a lovely guy. Even when he made a mistake, he's like, and he realized it later in life. And he spoke to that person and made amends. Yeah. I mean, also uh, to me seeing just like the audience reaction to that film, like at the sentence premiere, people were like standing ovation, bawling, crying to see how the number of people who bought tickets to go see it. It's beautiful because to me, you know, I like looking at box office as a way of calibrating appetites in America for certain things. And our appetite for kindness is so huge when you look at how well that film did. And we want someone like Mr. Rogers. Like it's it's weird that that hole hasn't been filled by somebody else. I mean, you would be terrific at that. Oh, really? (laughs) I think Jack McBrayer would be a perfect Mr. Rogers kind of person. Uh, Like he just has that like lovely, warm. Just the sweetest, he's the sweetest, nicest guy in the whole world. Maybe that would happen. No, I totally agree with you. I feel like, you know, we underestimate just feeling good. And that's kind of what comedies do. That's what Mamma Mia does. And I wonder if it will translate. I think it actually might even translate into a better film, which is what uh, Meryl Heller is doing with her Won't You Be My Neighbor feature, which stars Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. It might be better served as a film. God, is there like such a term as like niceception? I'm trying to just imagine what it is like for the nicest person uh, in Hollywood to play the nicest person on earth. And we'll just run this like nice hole where like no other niceness can exist in the universe because we have achieved the singularity of nice. (laughs) We will see. Will the world open up and all the problems be solved when that movie comes out? (laughs) It could happen. Um, Um, Well, let's talk about a passionate person, uh, the star of another documentary that a listener called in about. Let's take a listen. Hey guys, uh, the 2018 film that I think will and should be uh, on the list is actually Free Solo. It's the gnarliest thing a human being has ever done, caught on film uh, technically perfectly, uh, also while exploring what it's like to make the film um, and the stress that those guys were going through. I think it's absolutely incredible. I think it deserves to be there, and I think it will be there. Well, technically it can't be there, but I hear your passion and I appreciate it. But I thought that was the interesting thing about that film is that they kind of turned the camera on the people who were using the cameras. And it just connected you almost on two levels. The movie is takes your breath away. Right, because for people who haven't seen Free Solo, you know, it's about a climber named Alex Honnold, and he climbs the entire face of El Capitan, gigantic, gigantic mountain here in Yosemite, barehanded with no ropes no no hooks nothing to keep him safe and so the documentary when it turns itself on the director as a husband and wife pairing he's a mountain climber she's a documentary filmmaker it starts to ask questions about is it ethical for us to even be here doing this like is our presence as documentary filmmakers with this camera making him climb when maybe he wouldn't want to climb otherwise are we putting him under pressure where he could die under our watch making this film and i think that's really interesting because we don't really think enough about how just the presence of a filmmaker can make a documentary change what it was. Well, Because once the camera's there, you're not exactly as you would have been by yourself. Exactly. I think about that a lot with the Maisel brothers. Like, they were so kind of in the space that they felt, uh, uh, you know, invisible. But you're never invisible. You are, I mean, most of our television is reality, and people are living a version of their lives. And how written and how scripted it is varies. But you can't just be normal. You're not. Because you know that the cameras are, you're presenting yourself to camera. 
You know what, Amy? Let's kind of keep this doc talk coming. Doc talk. A doc talk. Doc uh, talk. With our next call-in. Um, you know this guy from the seminal sketch comedy group, The State, also from Stella. He is the director of Wet Hot American Summer and actually directed a film that came out this year on Netflix called A Stupid Futile Gesture. Uh, David Wayne. Hello, this is David Wayne. My favorite movie last year was Three Identical Strangers by Tim Wardle. It's one of those rare documentaries that keeps opening up and unfolding into areas, levels of depth that you're not predicting. I was on the edge of my seat following the ups and downs of this family and the unique situation they were in. And then on top of that, each character is adding a different color to make really one of the great portraits of New York and the East Coast in the 80s that I've ever seen, um, that particular swagger and personality that that place in time is all about. I loved it. What did you think of that movie? You know, that movie has a real twist halfway, halfway through I don't it. know what okay. it is. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. Um, the, the, the surprise that a man finds out that he has two identical twins is actually the least surprising thing that then starts wow. to happen. Other things start to happen. And it is the sort of doc where as you're walking down the street in the future, you might be like, am I who I am? Is there only one of me? What is happening? That, I thought that doc was tremendous fun because it's – you know, it, it's in the niche of documentaries I like where they're like, here's a weird news headline. Like the one from a few years ago about the men who were fighting over who owned a foot that was like severed and inside oh, yeah. a barbecue smoker. Did you see that mm-hmm. one? Loved that documentary. And then you take these stories that just sound like a joke, like a paragraph yeah. in a newspaper, and you expand it out to it becomes a story that really affects all of us. You know, it, where you find a really deep meaning in, into it. And that's why I think a documentary filmmaker can make a great difference in turning a, just a here are the facts, ma'am, to like a right. here is the world in this little story, ma'am. Well, you know what? I actually just talked to Devin. We have our phone call situation set up now so we can actually get through to Adam Scott. Let's uh, try him one more time here. Adam? Barney's Beef and Burrito Ben, this is Adam. Hey, Adam, it's uh, Paul and Amy. Hello. Hey, hey Adam, can you Hello? hear us? Hello? I, Ad- okay, well, I guess we, we'll, we'll, we'll try him again in a, in a little bit. Maybe it's Busy Shift. Maybe, yeah, you know what? It, you know what? I'm sure it just, we have some tech issue here. Amy, who should we go to next? We have so many great people on the uh, on the line here. I know. I mean, I feel sort of bad that we've been like talking about the films that can't make it on the AFI list, but not bad enough that maybe we shouldn't just keep it going and talk about some foreign films. Okay, great. Yeah. You know, I think one of the big omissions from last week's episode was Roma because we determined that that wouldn't be a film that was eligible for the list because it's a foreign film. This is the AFI, the American Film Institute. Uh, People took a lot of shots at me because Paddington also probably technically wouldn't be on the list. And the fact that we talked about Paddington 2 over Roma uh, probably a mistake on my part. I take a full blame for all of that. But you know what? I'll never regret talking about Paddington 2. But and I, you know what? I would not want to take out the joy that you put into the universe. I would not want to remove that from the universe. Thank so you. I'm glad that joy exists, even if I guess you're right, it was technically misdirected. <laughs> uh, well, let's hear uh, someone talk about Roma. And that someone is uh, the star of the Chris Gethard show, uh, one of the funniest shows uh, on TV. If you've never seen it, uh, there's an episode with Jason Manzukis and I uh, called Other People's Trash. Uh, and I don't want to tell you anything about, more about it, but you should definitely check it out. It's on YouTube. It's I can hands down say, yes, I was a part of it. I had nothing to do with it besides being in it. You will love it. He also has a uh, podcast here on Earwolf called Beautiful Anonymous. Please welcome uh, Chris Gethard. Hi, my name is Chris Gethard, the host of Beautiful Anonymous, and I am the king of earwolf phones. That being said, I know it's a generic answer. I know I'm talking about it. I know it's a hipster choice, but I saw Roma in the theater, and man, was that a great experience. 
And if you live in a city that's getting on board with the Oscar hype and is showing it on the big screen, I can't recommend it enough. Um, sorry to those who aren't. And I know we can all watch it on Netflix, and that's cool. But remember the movie experience and the popcorn and being in the, the shared collective environment. It was really great to see Roma that way. And I'm glad I got to. I think I'll remember it forever. That's great to hear. And it's a good argument to be made for seeing films in the theater. I mean, Roma is fantastic. Do you love Roma? I do. It's beautiful. It's, you can't If you don't like Roma, if you don't at least baseline like Roma, there's right. probably something wrong with you. I'm not saying you have to love it, but there's a baseline. You are good. I mean, there is something very much like a doc in Roma, too. I feel like you're really just existing with these people in the space. I, and you're kind of distant from it in, in, in many respects. I... Yeah, yeah, I can't help but like wonder if if like in talking about the doc aspects of it, you know, because like Alfonso Cuaron was really open about saying, yeah, I didn't tell my cast what was happening. They had no idea it was going to go on. I would tell them like to do different things at different times so that I'll be arriving into a scene with cross purposes. I didn't tell my lead that these things were going to happen to her character until the moment they happened. Wow. And like, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Like there's – I don't know if I want to – I don't want to spoil Roma for people right. who haven't seen it yet. But there's some stuff that happened to her and he like did not let her know what was going to happen. And I, I feel like in a way that almost hurts her best actress chances because mm-hmm. he's been – Cuadron's been making such a big deal about being like, she was suckered into it, blah, blah, right, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. Or at least like she didn't prepare for it. It wasn't acting. It was natural reacting. But – but yeah, there, he really wanted that verite feel. You know, it's interesting that Gethard said, you know, uh, I'm going to call him with the kind of the staple choice. But he's the only one who called in about Roma. And it's one of the films that I feel like definitely has gotten a lot of attention. I mean, everyone's talking about it. But it's interesting. I wonder if more people saw Roma this year because it was on Netflix. You know, it, it you know Netflix allows independent films, you to take a, a chance on them. You know, it's it's in your living room. You can feel comfortable watching it. I do believe that you lose out of some experience in seeing it in a crowded theater. And there's something that never, you'll never get that, no matter how big your screen is, no matter how great your sound system is. It's great to be surrounded by people and hear that laughter and, and, and feel that tension. But I also feel like for a film like this, if that's opening up a foreign language film to a larger audience, we talked about that a little bit earlier with Black Klansman, like, that's important. I think that's actually about cinema growing. And I know it's like not about theater, movie theaters growing, but it's about cinema growing. It, it, I think that that is important. Yeah, you know, I agree. Although let's go on the absolute opposite tack because we got a couple of listener phone calls about a movie that I think exists best on the computer screen. Oh, wow. So I've been thinking about it, and um, I think there might be a case that Searching, starring John Cho and Deborah Messing, could make a case for future inclusion on this list. Hear me out. Okay, so genre films are all over this list. We have plenty of westerns, we have some horror movies, some thrillers, but I think for a genre film to make the list right now, it needs to be doing something totally radical or revolutionary and kind of pushing back against the format. So with westerns, you know, The Searchers is so deliberately pushing against what's considered a traditional western. Um, With some of the thrillers, you know, you look at Hitchcockian approaches to thrillers and they're character-driven. If you look at Searching, I think you could make a case that it's really doing something radical with the thriller genre. Because most of the film takes place on screens, smartphones, and computers, I think it's really honestly acknowledging the fact that human communication today is totally radically different than it was 30 years ago. And rather than trying to, you know, fit a square peg into a round hole, the film embraces that. And, you know, that wasn't all. There's a lot of love for Searching. I think something that needs to be discussed is, I think 2018 is the year that more people saw those small art house films than they did previously, and I think that's because of MoviePass. 
and now, you know, you've got the other theaters doing their passes, too. Because of that, that I saw Annihilation in the theater. I saw uh, Widows in the theater. That was amazing. Uh, and I think a movie that you guys hadn't touched on that I, I think maybe just mentioned is Searching. Uh, John Cho was fabulous. One of his best performances ever. Um, you know, that's what I wanted to say. Love you guys. Watch all the superhero movies, every single one of them. I know Amy wants to throw her Twizzlers and Seltzer at me right now, but no, I'm going to keep watching them because I love them. Hold up, I'm keeping my Twizzlers to myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. You know, searching and movie pass, two things to talk about. Let's talk about searching first. That was a movie that got a lot of buzz this year, and then it kind of fizzled out. And not in the way that sometimes movies kind of if they come on too early, they kind of miss the the wave of award season. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in this type of, like, format breaking. You know, mm-hmm. I I loved the first Unfriended that we had. Right. It was just all, like, inside of a Skype and people calling in. I'm fascinated by this. I'm not – you might have guessed by now that I'm not that much of a format snob. When right. People are like, well, you must see this in IMAX. You must see this in this aspect ratio. Yeah. I, I'm story first, for sure. Yeah. To me, I'm just mainly about, like, access. Can a film get to everybody? And I'm all about it. But oh, also, to your point about, like, staggering releases throughout the year – I kind of hate it, and I wish there was a better solution than everybody putting out all their Oscar stuff like from September on. Yeah, because I want to see good stuff all year round. And whenever it, whenever a film exists in March that somehow pulls all the way through, that makes me really happy. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it seems to be a really complicated process to keep a film in the conversation if it doesn't just come out within the three months before the Academy Awards. But Searching is a film that I really feel like we got four calls on Searching and. From everything that we got on the show this week, that was the the most repeated one. And I thought that was really interesting. That movie connected with people in a really interesting way. And I feel like, you know, searching as a thriller element to it. There are, you know, of course, films like A Quiet Place, which also is kind of uh, taking a format and changing it a little bit, you know. And I think sometimes that really helps a film rise above the rest just because it's different. It's easy to say, did you see the film where no one spoke? Did you see the film where it's all on the computer? And I feel like uh, maybe that's a way just to kind of, if you're an independent filmmaker out there, like that helps you get in the conversation. Mm. But MoviePass, that's an interesting idea. Like I know that AMC Stubbs is doing a program. There's a lot of these, uh, you know, pay one fee, go to the theater as many times as you want kind of programs. And I think that that's actually really good. It's become so expensive to go to the theater that why not like reward the people who want to go and, and give them a reason to go again and again and take chances. Because I feel like with a high ticket price, you don't want to take chances. And it's the reason why we just talked about Roma being successful on Netflix. There's no chance to take. You'll just go see it. Same way that the Adam Sandler films on Netflix are huge. You'll go watch it. it there's no, you don't have to pay $15 for it. They're, they're built to be successful simply because you don't feel like you're putting yourself out there. And I think it's it's hard. Like, to bring a family of three to a movie is, is really expensive. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, people talk about the inertia of getting them off the couch. We've right. got to get people off the couch. But and two pa- smaller seats at a different location. Yeah. yeah. But what MoviePass showed is people actually don't have a problem getting off the couch. It's yeah. just that things are expensive. Right. So people, I wish yeah. that they had found a price point where it would have worked out because I had MoviePass. I was like, okay. And I, I see pretty too. much every movie, not to sound like a jerk, but for free because of work, because right. I have to. Well, that's your job. And, and I would go see things twice because I would really want to, like The Greatest Showman. Yeah. I think part <laughs> of the reason The Greatest Showman did so well at the box office 
full stop is MoviePass. It was like right, right when everybody was first getting it. And that movie is amazing. You see, and I feel like that's kind of the benefit of what these streaming services offer. So maybe there is this middle ground where, you know, I think the AMC Stubbs Club is better than MoviePass. That's the way, it, like, at least in my playing around with both of them. You just I, like saying Stubbs Club. I like Stubbs Club. <laughs> um, people, let's talk about looking good. You're listening to the show. You have great taste. Why not have your clothes reflect that taste? And this is where Black Tux comes in. Black Tux is a, I don't know, a suit and tux delivery service. They carry all kinds of suits and tuxedos, uh, styles that would be wildly expensive to buy, and you might only wear once, and they send them to you to rent, okay? You can pick out your style online. You can try it on at home to make sure that the fit works. You send it back, and then just a couple days before your event, you get your tux or your suit, in the mail, you put it on, and you look good for that event. You can go to a different event every single day of the week, and everyone will say, oh, my God, you look so damn good. Well, guess what? The secret's out. Black tux. It's not that you're just spending a lot of money, but you're going to look like you're spending a lot of money. People are like, did that person get a bonus? Did that person get uh, more money than me? They're going to start hating you because you look so good, and that's what you need to do, okay? Black tux is about being the better person from the outside in. Now, let me tell you something. If you don't like anything about this black tux, you don't like your suit, you don't like anything, eh, you send it back. Okay, they'll give you a replace one right away. Returns are simple. Just wear it, turn heads, send it back three days after your event. Shipping is free both ways. And let me tell you, it's so easy. So many things to choose from. You could literally go out for 25 days in a row, even 35 days in a row. But who goes out that many days in a row? You're going to get sick. You can't go out that much. You got to relax. You got to stay in one night. So you go out every single night and look different every single night. And here's the deal. I want you to try it so bad that I'm going to give you $20 off your purchase. You just go visit blacktux.com and enter the offer code UNSPOOLED. That's blacktux.com, offer code UNSPOOLED. And you get $20 off your first purchase. You need a suit. You do. You do, you do, you do. You got two in that closet. Come on, people. You got to look good. Just rent a suit for one night. Just go out. See how it feels. Get $20 off at blacktux.com slash unspooled. Black Tux premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered right to your door. Wow, Paul, you're looking really good. And I have a question for you. Yeah. Your tux is sharp. The whole yes. look, the shoes, the shoes. What's that in your uh, upper breast pocket there? Is that a simple, powerful remote control finishing your look? Yes, Amy. As you know, I like to put uh, a remote control into my suit pocket as the new kind of uh, handkerchief. It makes me seem tech savvy, yet stylish. Uh, I'm a real Elon Musk type of dresser. Well, you know, when that remote control is the Cabo, you are tech savvy. You yes. are Yes. That is the ultimate Flourish of a man who knows what he wants when he turns on his TV, his sound system, his yes. cable, his satellite, his game console, yes. his everything, because you can do that all with your one beautiful, powerful Calvo remote that cleans up. Oh my God, imagine if your pocket had like six remotes in it. Oh, Amy. Overstuffed, cluttered. I mean, we're, we're saying, we're, we're, we're agreeing that we as a culture have too many remotes in our house, right? We have to control so many different things. And Cavo takes the guesswork out. There's one remote, controls it all. You, you grab for one, that's it. You don't go like, oh, I'm comfortable on the couch. I got everything ready to go. Oh, wait, now I need to find my uh, DVD remote. Uh, no, no, no. You got one remote. You got the one remote, you're fine. You're set, you're done. And you know what's so magical? Like if you're going to wear your like black tux with your like Cavo yeah. remote in the pocket to a party, everybody's going to want to talk to you because when you yes. have a Cavo remote, you can walk up to it and say, hey, Cavo. Play me first reformed. And that Kavo will do it for they you. They listen People, to you. They don't just want to talk to you, Paul. They want to talk to your remote because your remote, it cares. But surely, Amy, something like this is hundreds of dollars. 
well, yes, yes. It, it would literally be $100 if you bought a Cavo if you didn't know us. Really? Well, well, do we have like a, an in with them, you think? We do have an in with them. Because Whoa. if you want a Cavo remote, if you really do, if you're like right there ready to go to caavo.com and look for your Cavo remote, type in the promo code UNSPOOLED. Oh, I like that. Because then you're going to get 40% off that Cavo remote. It's so you're going to say it's going to be fifty nine ninety five if I use the promo code UNSPOOLED at caavo.com? You're not just fashionable. You are good at math. Wow. Cavo Control Center. One remote that does it all. This sounds amazing. I'm on. I'm in. I'm getting it right now. Well, let's talk about a movie that we've already talked about a little bit, but it kind of falls in this interesting horror genre. Uh, our next caller is uh, a writer and a director. He wrote Iron Man 3. He also is a director of a, a film that came out this year that I thought was uh, really kind of uh, cool called Hotel Artemis that reminded me uh, of like Repo Man, uh, kind of like the cool uh, late night Cinemax movies that you would see. Uh, and it's our Jodie Foster and Brian Tyree Henry, and Jeff Goldblum, and a bunch of great people. Uh, this is uh, Drew Pierce. Hello, Unspooled. Uh, this is Drew Pierce. I never do end-of-year lists because I find this stuff way too difficult. Um, but because it's you chaps, look, I loved Roma and The Favourite, like everyone else, because I'm a fully functioning human being, and they're glorious. And I love Widows, because instead of being a patronizing art house swing at genre, it was like a straight-up Eddie Coyle-style genre classic. And I think Spider-Verse is literally the best superhero movie of all time, even better than Iron Man 3. Uh, but my favorite at the end of the year has to be Mandy, because there never has been and never will be a movie like it. And that's a glorious thing. And I love that. I feel like you know Mandy is another one of these movies that we talked about that is so, like, your jaws is like, whoa, what did they do and Panos Cosmatos like did an amazing job of just making noise. And I feel like that's what you have to do now in cinema is make noise. You can't just go in with story. There needs to be a catch. There needs to be a hook. And it's happening with TV shows too. It's like, it's not just a TV show. It's a TV show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. It's like, oh, well, I have to watch that. It's like, it's not like, you know, we're not leading a lot of the times with story or, you know, it's, it's like, who's in it. And I feel like it's always so fun to see someone just go, no, this is all in my head. Let me bring it bring it out in a crazy way. And by the way, I would be remiss if I did not let Hotel Artemis go by without a chance for me to just say, Sofia Butella, greatest actress on the planet who I cannot wait to see more of in everything. She's yeah. so good in that movie. If you can't picture uh, Sofia Butella in your head immediately, she's the girl from The Kingsman with like the blade legs. Yes. And she's in The Mummy. She's The Mummy. She's phenomenal in The Mummy. I'm like, I'm so much she on is great. Sofia Butella train. Um, but yeah, that was a good call. You know, we got another call about Widows too. Oh yeah. From a respected critic. Let's Let's bring him on. Hello, Richard Roper. What did he have to say? Hi, it's movie watcher Richard Roper, and uh, my favorite film of 2018 was The Criminally Overlooked Widows, directed by the great Steve McQueen, uh, filmed entirely here in my hometown of Chicago, and it really, really does a great job of capturing the world of politics, race relations in Chicago, and it's also just a really cool heist movie, and it had maybe the best cast of any movie of 2018. Uh, Cynthia Erivo, Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Brian Tyree Henry, Colin Farrell, Robert Duvall, amazing ensemble cast, really cool. Uh, it works on so many different levels. It's my favorite genre film. It does about five different genres. Widows should have had about eight Oscar nominations. Hopefully it will have a new life on home video. 
That's a great review and makes me, again, really want to see Widows. It's been in my backpack. I have the screener DVD and I've been dying to watch it. Uh, I feel like this is what we're talking about, like a chance for it to get a second life on home video or, or on demand. You know, people find things so much later now and they take ownership over it. I always look at MacGruber as an example of that, like a great movie. I saw it in the theater. I was like, this is the funniest fucking movie I've ever seen. And then it just like, just died a horrible death in the theater, but it's hilarious. Yeah, MacGruber was like, I thought I was existing on another astral plane from the rest of civilization. I saw MacGruber and I was like, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. It's so fucking funny. And then nobody saw it. And then now it exists again. Now it exists again, which makes me so happy. But it was like, where were y'all? I also feel the same way about a movie that I was in. I had a small part in Popstar, which is uh, a really funny movie made by the Lonely Island guys. And it just, it's hard. If you don't, Find that thing. It's hard to connect on this other level. Popstar uh, is terrific, by the way, and I think a lot of its songs should have been nominated for oh, Oscars. It, they, they were so catchy. The The Lonely Island, they do something unlike anybody else in comedy and in rap music that is so unique, and it's they're beautifully produced songs as well as being lyrically. Uh, hilarious they're just really well done i love it well then let's go to another film that kind of segues from what we're talking about it's another film with a little bit of a musical element and it's another film that i think really captures the town that it was set in we get a call from listener and critic kip mooney about a movie that he really loves hi my name is kip mooney and i'm a film critic in atlanta um and the 2018 movie that i think has a shot at making a future afi list that hasn't been discussed yet is blind spotting um, this is uh, the debut of David Diggs and Rafael Casal, um, lifelong friends from Oakland, California. And uh, this movie really walks a, a tonal tightrope in telling its story of gentrification in Oakland and police shootings and people living on probation and all the challenges that they face. Um, and it's a really intense movie. Um, but also a movie that has time for uh, really great diversions into hip-hop and some really funny scenes as well. There's actually a lot of humor in it, and the fact that it manages to do that without giving the audience whiplash is just incredible. Yeah, I have not seen Blind Spotting, but it's one of those films that I know when it came out of Sundance, people really were talking about it. And it's, again, one of those examples of a film that you know makes a buzz but can't you know, connect into this larger realm. And it's kind of what Boots Riley was talking about with Sorry to Bother You. It's like, well, to make that next leap, you have to spend a lot of money. That's why I think you see, like, all this attention around A Star is Born because that's Warner Brothers, a huge studio. Like, they can afford to kind of train in the best facilities. It's like, you know, it's... uh, And Roma, to be fair. Like, they are spending so much insane amounts of money promoting Roma here among Oscar voters. It's crazy. Like, you could fund several nations, I think, with the Roma budget that Netflix has. Blind Spotting is terrific, though, to to Kip's point. I'm getting a good list together now from this episode. It's so good. And I really think that's a, a film that touches on so much of what's important this year. We're having, like, a whole national conversation about, like, gentrification and housing and the crisis of it. And that film just brings it to life in just a few characters kind of witnessing their world. There's a party scene in that movie that's going to just, like, make your eyebrows fall out with tension. I love it. So I look forward to that. Uh, Let's talk about another film that has, like, I think a really strong sense of place. Because that's what I really admire is when a director can just sort of, like, 
parachute in and tell a story about a place that they're not from or in the case of blind spotting like tell a story about about where they are from but like whatever it is capture not this generic appeal to everybody in mass americana suburbia but a really localized story that can really affect people so for that let's hear from alicia malone tcm host and person we just adore Hi, Paul and Amy. It's Alicia Malone. I am sick at the moment in bed, but I didn't want to miss my chance to advocate for The Rider by Chloe Zhao. I think this is a movie that is very American in that it takes a look at a trope that we've seen in films for for a long, long time, The American Cowboy, and gives it a real spin. It's a docu-fiction, a wonderful blend of documentary and fiction, and it shows a community on screen we don't normally get to see. I think this is a film that in years to come we'll still be looking at and marveling at how she was able to get those performances from non-professional actors. And I would love to see the writer join the AFI list in the future. Bye. I love this idea that we've been talking about with getting non-professional actors to give great performances. And is that a bad thing that you have? Like, you know, or is that a great thing? Is like showing you how great or important directing is. You know, like you can you can create a performance. A director, even like Bo Burnham, who is showing Elsie Fisher her sides the day of, like not making her get overly conscious about the script. Is, is that, you know, I think that that's oh, a style of directing. You don't have to be like the best actors to give a great performance in a way, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I like sticking up for that style of director, you know, because I think we give a lot more attention to the directors who are gigantic, like Christopher Nolan. Mm -hmm. And I think Christopher Nolan has great set pieces and really good ideas and doesn't quite get the performances out of people that somebody else might. Yeah. You know, like I could imagine like if Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao getting a much better performance out of Jessica Chastain in, in something like Interstellar. Interstellar. You know, I want to see like a director who's really good with people, who has like an empathy clicking with people, do Interstellar again. You know, let's round this out though by taking a call about a movie that is set in a place that doesn't exist. And I really wish it did because as I was watching this movie, I thought I want to go exactly there. Hi, Paul and Amy. Uh, my name is Sharon. Um, love the show. Uh, I think one, I don't know if this movie would ever end up on the AFI list, but I think that Bad Times at the El Royale was one of the best movies that came out last year. Cynthia Revo was amazing. Uh, Chris Hemsworth was a fantastic villain. It was just really nice seeing Dakota Johnson in a movie um, where I cared about what happened to her in a slightly different way from Fifty Shades of Grey. But um, I thought it was like one of the best ensemble casts of the year, for sure. It had a great production design great uh, soundtrack. There are just lots of things about it that I think are really underrated. It's kind of, for me, the nice guys of this year in that it was a great period piece with a lot of good comedy and other actors surrounding really good material that just didn't get seen by a lot of people. And I think that that should be acknowledged. Um, anyway, I uh, love the show. I hope you guys have a good week. Bye. You know, I agree with that. I really enjoyed uh, Bad Times at El Royale. And I feel like the same way about Hotel Artemis. They're these movies that I don't think are created to be mainstream movies. They're just cool, like, little genre pieces that, you know, unfortunately have to fit into this mold of, like, a big-budget film. I mean, I know from Hotel Artemis, I think they made, the trailers made you feel like it was John Wick, but it wasn't John Wick. It was much more of a of a drama that was in in this really cool locale. And I feel the same way, like, El Royale, they didn't know how to market it. So it just, it didn't feel like you could even go, like, I want to see that. It 
it just was cool and interesting. And maybe that goes back to the movie pass thing. You'd be more willing to see these films if you would be like, I don't know what I'm seeing. Yeah, I second everything that Sharon just said. I also love that we got two Cynthia Riva shout-outs in yes. this episode already, which is awesome. And also the nice guys. Like, I'm not the biggest Gosling person, as I think I have not hidden yeah. maybe on this podcast before. But Gosling's whole, like, bathroom door cigarette, newspaper, pants, like comedy oh, routine and that, the nice guys is maybe my favorite 30 seconds of anything he's ever done. That I love. I mean, I'm a big Shane Black person, uh, but I'll say I didn't see Predator. Uh, but uh, but I'm a big Shane Black fan and love that film and the comedy that he gets out of both of them. Ryan Gosling, I think, is an underrated comedy performer. And I think that comes from his Disney kid training. I uh, wish he would do comedy. I wish I would he would like, stop with like the sulkies and go with the funnies. <laughs> I Look, I'm not going to argue that I would like to see him do more comedies. Um, well, here's an interesting film that we can't really talk about as part of the AFI list, but it's another one of these uh, foreign films that I've heard so much great stuff about. And this is actually coming from Academy Award-nominated screenwriter for Disaster Artists and also the co-writer of 500 Days of Summer and The Fault in Our Stars, I'm Michael Weber. Hi, Amy. Hi, Paul. It's Michael Weber, screenwriter and fan of the podcast. Uh, 2018 movie that I loved and inspired me, Shoplifters. I know, I know, you're doing the AFI list and there's no foreign films. Still, Shoplifters is great. Uh, it's about an unconventional family and the question of, are they really a family? What makes a group of people a family? Is it only genetic or is it something more? Uh, and Shoplifters is funny and smart and real and it has so much heart. And you know what? It's criminal how few movies about families are on the top 100 list. There's Grapes of Wrath, uh, The Godfathers, Sound of Music. I guess The Searchers is, The Searchers is kind of one, maybe, uh, and a few others. But we're talking well under 10% of the list. Meanwhile, it feels like 50-plus movies are about great men or damaged men or men trying to do things. Where are the movies about families? Ordinary people should be on the list. What's eating Gilbert Grapes? should be on the list. The Royal Tenenbaums should be on the list. And one day, when the AFI becomes the World Film Institute, Shoplifters will take its rightful place on the list as well. Bye, guys. Oh, Whoa. my God. Can Michael just hang out with us every day? I love I that. Him. What an impassioned plea. And and what a great point, too. We're talking about comedies and family films. Like These are the most relatable films, and yet – they are the ones that are most neglected on this list. Yes. It's a great point. And never, we talk a lot about- I'm a lone wolf. Yeah, we've talked so much about all the 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 very uh, apparent things that aren't on the list, you know, but that's a really interesting one. I never would have thought that. Yeah, one of the only other uh, ones I can think to add to his list of like the very few ones we have is E.T. And otherwise, mm -hmm. yeah, we're just like, I'm damaged. Hello, talk yeah. to me about my damages. Um, I think we finally have the phone call situation working for Adam Scott. Let's let's call him right now and see what he has to say here. Barney's beef and breed have been Adam, can you hear us now? Okay, We're listen. I am trying to run a business here. So if you're I, I don't have time to fuck around, so if you want to call me and just sit there and not talk. I, I no, we're just want do me a favor and stop calling. No, we just wanna uh sorry, this is Adam Scott with my uh my favorite movie of the year. I apologize. Uh, just erase all that. Just forget it. Um, for me, my favorite movie of the year was Hold the Dark. It is a uh, terrific movie. It's from uh, Jeremy Solonier, and I 
think I'm pronouncing his name right. And he's made three films so far and they're all terrific, incredible performances. And, uh, from, uh, from Jeffrey Wright and, uh, Alexander Skarsgård. It's, uh, super dark. It has a feeling to it that you don't uh, really get that I've never really had in a movie before. It's really pretty deeply interesting, but also a terrifying and exciting uh, movie with a feeling that uh, a real kind of new, a new feeling of tone that I'd never quite felt before. Uh, it's a great movie. Um, and it's on Netflix. My, my other honorable mentions would be like Isle of Dogs, uh, The Land of Steady Habits. Uh, oh, Mission Impossible would be my second, a close second. That was almost my number one, Mission Impossible. If I could be Peter Traversy for a minute, it's that it was, I think it's my favorite action movie since Temple of Doom. Or either that, like, like it's another high point, like The Matrix was, as far as action movies go. The other, oh, Spider-Man, of course, Paddington 2, uh, Star is Born, um, Mandy is incredible, Juliet Naked, uh, Hereditary, holy shit, that's a great movie. So those are my favorites. Thanks, bye. I am glad that Adam is on my page about Mission Possible Fallout. I agree, and he articulated it really well. Like, it's a movie that kind of, I think, pushes forward the genre in a really interesting way like it it kind of steps up what you need to do in an action movie now i felt so invigorated by that I, my brain is just like really caught up in the idea of tom cruise having a beef and bean burrito in his stomach doing helicopter stunts so that's just like my brain <laughs> well, is just there just right because now. adam scott works there doesn't mean that he's serving the burritos to him you don't think adam scott is like hand delivering burritos with his well, love he's, he's like twisting them into bouquets <laughs> that he's delivering from his no i don't think so now amy did you see hold the dark I did see Hold the Dark. I did see Hold the Dark. And like when he was describing Hold the Dark, I started picturing the feeling of watching Hold the Dark, which is like the feeling of being covered in like bare grease and Mm -hmm. hiding in the snow. It's a very dismal movie. Yeah, I find that director to create films that make me literally cover my eyes. And I did not see Hold the Dark. I saw Green Room. Uh, Did you see Blue Ruin? I did see Blue Ruin. And and they are – hard movies. I mean, we talked about Hereditary fucking me up. It's different. These movies are like, oof, I haven't seen brutality is a is a tricky word, but it's like it's it's very visceral or or something. They're just they're tough movies to watch. That you know. Yeah, he somehow really splits that line Jeremy Saulnier of of taking it right to where you are cringing without really going into full gore torture. Right. No, you, I mean, yeah. the stuff he does with dogs in Green Room, oh, my God. Oh, God. But he really I, – I appreciate – if you can call it restraint, I would call it restraint of some sort. I think he's really exciting. I'm sad he broke his color naming trend. I guess is dark a color? Yeah, I guess dark is technically a shade, a yeah, shade. A shade, uh, a shade. <laughs> but, um, you know, and there's a difference. Like, there's a movie like that Vince Vaughn movie, like Riot on Cell Block 9 or whatever. That's just a fucking brutal movie. That and is people, a brutal movie. You know, people getting curb stomped or whatever. It, but there's a difference. There's an artistry in in his films versus like that. Like, that's like violence for violence sake. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I enjoyed that movie, too. Sure, I, like, yeah. I enjoyed Vince Vaughn's performance in the Cell Block I, 99. Yeah, I enjoyed movie. it, too. Yeah. But it's like, but it's a different thing that they're both going for. It, it's it's a different type of 
Yeah, sometimes yeah. I'm not always sure if that director knows what they're going for besides like, ta-da! Like there's a film I just saw <laughs> called Donnybrook and I was like, you're just really gruesome for right? to the point of making me want to die. Well, to me, like when I think back of like movies that kind of shook me when I was a kid, like American History X, when I first saw that in the curb stomping <laughs> scene. No, you but, just like, said the curb stomping scene and I uh, I immediately heard the sound of teeth on granite yeah, and it just, oh. uh, And that that's a film where it's not, you're not seeing it. You're just you're being walked into it and that's a, that's a fucking brutal movie too like yeah it's a, it's I interesting I think I will see that scene when I die I think Ooh. when I die that if we that, if our I mean, death yeah. montage is like the 10 most visceral <laughs> things we ever saw in a movie that will be there now we're getting down to our last handful of calls these are calls that are kind of continuing to talk about films that we really liked and that we uh, kind of already put up on a pedestal but I want to hear other people's opinions about them and let's start off with um a stand-up comic. He is also on the show Black Monday with me. Uh, he is a writer for shows like Girls and Mrs. Fletcher, uh, and also Black Monday, Yasser Lester. Hey, this is Yasser Lester. Uh, and my favorite movie of 2018 is Annihilation, written and directed by Alex Garland, starring Natalie Portman, Gina Rodriguez, Jennifer Jason Lee, Tessa Thompson, Oscar Isaac. Uh, outside of literally gathering a phenomenal cast, it's one of the best, one of the weirdest, one of the strangest, one of the most artistic, one of the most uh, metaphorical, if you will, uh, scripts I've read, uh, films that I've seen shot. It was the nicest surprise, uh, especially in a year with gigantic movies. You had your Black Panthers, your Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verses. I mean, this one kind of slid in. Uh, without without too much hype, and it was phenomenal from the first frame to the last. I cannot recommend this movie enough, how incredible it is, how much it gets you thinking and terrified and just intrigued from, from uh, you know, beginning to end. It scared me. I started watching it in the dark and had to turn the lights on, but it is phenomenal. You have to see Annihilation, best movie of 2018, in my opinion. Bye. You know, and that's a great example. You know, I we felt the same way about Annihilation, but that's a great example of a studio dumping a movie. Like they did not want that movie to do good. They they did numbers on it, and it was like, nope, not a film that is going to get people in the theater. And they just kind of like let it go. And it's a shame because I think a lot of people did find it later on. I I did get to see it in the theater because I had listened to a slash film podcast, and I was like, oh my god, I'm so excited to see it. And I feel like. Good sci-fi, like not the Autobots are coming, is rare. We don't get that kind of stuff. And that's what makes me excited about like the new Twilight Zone or even seeing things like what Charlie Sanders did with uh, Weird City on YouTube. Uh, like it's like just like sci-fi that comments and it's challenging and 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 is in metaphor, you know, for what we're living in now. I, I like that stuff. Yeah, and your your Autobots reference makes me think that it is an absolute crime that uh, Annihilation didn't get recommended for the Oscars for sound design. Oh my god, Screamy Bear! Oh my Screamy god, Screamy Bear! I mean, I love the Transformers sound, and I think Screamy Bear is up there with like the Transformers. I can hear every single individual pane of glass breaking when the Autobot smashes a building. I love sound, and so therefore I love horror because horror makes awesome use of sound. Mm. So let's take another call about another scary movie. Hey guys, it's uh, producer Dana from Earwolf. Um, had to call in for this episode because I just absolutely need to gush about my favorite movie of 2018, which was Overlord. <laughs> Literally the most underrated movie of the year. 
maybe underrated horror movie of the last bunch of years. From the very beginning, it is absolutely insanely action-packed. Um, the directing is unreal. Uh, it's Nazis. It's zombie-type creatures. I don't want to give too much away, um, but it was seriously one of those movies where I think I may have said, oh, my God, out loud like 90 million times, and luckily the theater was not too packed. You have to see this movie. It's absolutely crazy. There's, like, amazing practical effects that, you know, you don't see too much in horror movies these days. So get into it if you love gore, if you love uh, war films. Go see this movie, Overlord. It's insane. I love it. It's crazy. I screamed 90 million times. It's nuts. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Producer Dana, who is in studio with us right now and had to listen to herself leave her own message. Um, This is an interesting movie because it's like produced by J.J. Abrams. And it made me feel like the trailer reminded me of like, oh, is this like a Duke Nukem thing? It's like a a Hitler kind of zombie movie. It's good. It's so good. It like 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I can't believe it got buried so much. It's it came out at a weird time. I think it was like November or December or something. And I feel like that maybe that's what kind of like buried it. It's so good. I mean, look, 90% of Google users love this movie. (laughs) So I mean, I will say I am shocked and pleased that I saw it and like that punching Nazis still feels really, really good. That was great. Yeah, there was a lot of (laughs) like... Maybe now more than ever. I just love like the gore in it and I I feel like that you... It's a ride that you you don't get off of until the very end. Like there's no... There was no moments in it that I felt like I was like, oh, I'm in a movie theater. I'm conscious of this or there's like a lull. It felt like I was like, there was just no moments where it dipped. It was just like constant action and craziness the entire time. Let me ask you a question. Would you recommend that people go on a double feature to see Overlord and Overboard? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think that if you see Overlord first, I have not seen Overboard, but I can imagine it would be a good palate cleanser. (laughs) Well, I mean, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Overboard, uh, Eugenio Derbez, he's also a zombie, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, the amazing thing about Eugenio Derbez is I don't think he's a zombie, but I do think he is a vampire because he's he like looks young. Yeah, he's shirtless and hot all over the new overboard. And yeah. how old is he again? I mean, he's a he's a he's a definitely not a young young man, but he looks great. Yeah. Okay, I want you to guess how old he is because I'm going to look this up right I'm now. I'm at 52. Okay, he's 57. So you were close. I thought he but, was like 35. No, you know what? And I only guessed high because you put me on the spot, so I was going to guess higher because I he's been around for such a long time. So I go, I go to do in a guessing high. Yes, okay, I would have yeah. I would have gone much lower. I would have said like he would have been like 35 absolutely yeah well he's he's a big old he's a big old hunk let's talk about a movie that also got people in a very visceral way and it's a it's a film that's been just getting a ton of awards there's been so much love for uh spider-man into the spider-verse uh and let's hear uh some people talk a little bit about that. Uh, first up is uh, the co-creator of Lost, The Leftovers, and the upcoming HBO original series, The Watchmen, Damon Lindelof. Hey, Colin and Amy, it's Damon Lindelof calling. I was given this number to um, to talk about my favorite movie of the past year, and uh, it is hands down uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Um, I love Spider-Man. Uh, I love comic books, so I don't think that I should have been surprised by liking this movie, but I legitimately loved it. I never seen anything like it. It had me from the jump, from the very beginning. It just felt uh, cool and of the moment, 
and a real great focus on character. It was funny, and it just looked amazing, just the way the whole movie was put together. Um, I, I wanted to see it again immediately afterwards, and I think that movies that sort of unite my wife, who's not a comic book nerd, but kind of, you know, likes good storytelling, and my son, uh, who's 12 years old, for the three of us to all sit there and say, that's one of the best things that we saw this year, if not the best, that's that's quite an accomplishment. So, Spider-Verse wins. The one thing that I really liked that he talked about with Spider-Verse was this idea of uniting people. I mean, we already said this movie is great, and and, and there's a real strong argument to make that this is a movie that maybe does make the list in a, in a handful of years just because it pushes forward so many different things all at once. But the one thing I really found about this film was how it transcended a typical superhero movie. Um, next up to talk about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is – a, uh, a comic book creator himself, he actually uh, wrote an amazing run of Black Panther, still writes comics, but you would probably know him more as a amazing director. He's directed uh, movies like Marshall, House Party, Boomerang. Um, welcome, Reggie Hudland. Hi, this is Reggie Hudland, and I'm calling in about my uh, one of my favorite movies of 2018, and the movie I've seen three times has been Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's an incredible movie. Um, I'm a big comic book fan, uh, and this is a movie that's never been made before, even with all the comic book movies out there. As an animated movie, it's a breakthrough film uh, for every reason. You've never seen anything like it. If you haven't seen it, go, go check it out. Can I just say, by the way, I don't know if you know this about me, but House Party is one of my top ten favorite films. Oh, I, Reggie directed some episodes of Black Monday, and I i mean, House Party is great. I love Boomerang, though, too. Boomerang is an underrated, great film. They just did a big feature on an Entertainment Weekly. Uh, Reggie really is like a guy who – I mean, House Party – House Party is perfection. Yeah. House Party is so happy. I think House Party is one of the best teen movies ever made. I worship at the feet of House Party. Uh, I am a fan, and I'm glad that Reggie loves Spider-Man and Spider-Verse so much, too, because I think that that movie is also a teen movie in a great way. Like, it, you know, it's a teen movie. It's it's a movie that unites, I think, you know, I walked out of that theater, and I was like, I want to put on a Spider-Man costume. And I was tweeting at the directors, and like, you can, because there is a 40-year-old person in that movie who's wearing a Spider-Man costume. And you can also also be, you know, a 16-year-old boy or a girl or whatever. And I love that idea that we there's there's something that unites us all. That is beautiful. You know what? Let's give another shout-out to another teen movie. What do you think about that? All Great. right. Let's introduce Matthew Robinson. He was the former host of Get Up On This here at Earwolf. He wrote The Invention of Lying with Ricky Gervais. He wrote Monster Trucks, which I saw. And actually, like, I saw a bunch of people high-fiving throughout that movie. I love that. I swear to God. He's working on a bunch of really cool upcoming stuff, like The New Little Shop of Horrors, a bunch of stuff yes. we can't talk about yet. All right, Matt, what you got for us? Hey, Amy and Paul. Matthew Robinson here. I have to say my favorite movie of the year would be Eighth Grade. It was gentle and sweet and kind and... Could have so easily been a cynical, angry movie about our times, but it was so optimistic and uplifting, and I found that surprising. And I cannot wait to see what Bo Burnham does next. Have a great year, guys. I don't know why I said have a great year. It's not New Year's. Bye. Have a great year, Matt. Have a great year. No, but I think, you know, that's an interesting choice. The thing that we've been finding about this list is it's so diverse. People really are picking different things that connected with them, and it kind of goes to show you that, you know, what I think film does, it unites us. There's not like one thing, not everyone called in 
with one movie. And it kind of debunks the idea for a need for a list because Whoa, 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 don't debunk all, all of our <laughs> needs. But I think that's so weird. We like I think it's so weird that this list has been so eclectic with people calling in. I yeah. kind of love it. And you know, we haven't heard we have not heard anybody calling in for Green Book and we have not heard anybody calling in for Bohemian Rhapsody. Which yes, you're I right. Is find kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I, I really love it. Let's all right, let's get down to our final couple of calls here. Uh this is from uh one of the uh, writers, executive producers of Broad City. She also uh, wrote and directed a movie called Rough Night. Uh, welcome, Lucia Anello. Hi, this is Lucia in yellow, and my favorite movie of 2018 is Marielle Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, it's a movie about loneliness and desperation, and it's not just a well-observed character study of Leo's Real by Melissa McCarthy. It also has heart-pounding scenes, and Richard E. Kelly is so good in it, um, and also you get to see a lot of cat poop. So um, I highly recommend. Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs> I like that. That would be the selling point. But by the way, it is one of the most memorable scenes. Like I, you know, there are certain scenes that you can feel like you're there, and the smell. Like when I thought about what the smell of that apartment must have been like, the cat poop under the bed, like, is so like cuts me to my core, but oh, I get, I know, oh, ah, like it, I, I'm even thinking about it right now. <laughs> it's really true. And you should call him Richard E. Kelly, but Richard E. Grant is probably one of my favorite actors this year to just get to see go off, you know, yeah. just to like take a role, put that role between his teeth, like he is a cat with a cat and a mouse, I guess, and just like tear around the room and leave droppings of himself everywhere because he just like left nothing. He left nothing inside. He put it all in the movie and I adored that. That was so fun. Our second to last call is from a director that I really, uh, really love. He actually has a romantic comedy coming out that I think you're going to love with uh, Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen called Long Shot that's I coming. I know where to see that. It's so good. I have a small part in it. And uh, also uh, directed some films that I really, really love. Um, the Wackness and 50-50 and Warm Bodies. Uh, let's hear from Jonathan Levine. Yo, this is Jonathan Levine, um, and the movie I'm picking is First Reformed by Paul Schrader. Um, I thought it was just an incredible uh, distillation of everything Paul's been doing his whole career, um, and probably his best film. Um, and I should know, because I was his assistant for a year, um, and I actually left to go to AFI, and he went to AFI. He was the only person who went to AFI, I think, as a film critic. Anyway, you can just sort of see uh, that side of him working in this movie. It works on such an amazing uh, visceral level, but it also works on a thematic level, and um, not to mention, like, the film looks beautiful, and it's got an incredible performance from Ethan Hawke. And uh, anyway, it was just cool, because I used to work for him, and I was um, a huge fan of all his work. And to see him, after all these years, make his masterpiece, um, I found to be really rewarding. Wow, so basically we should go to Jonathan for all the hot Schrader gossip? <laughs> I, that's really fascinating. I didn't realize that he worked for him. And, you know, and I... That must mean, I mean, usually if you work for somebody and they're the worst, you would never say their movie. So he must no. have been an okay boss. No, I feel like, but also I love the idea that, like, you know, He's a guy who's been a real journeyman. Like, you know, when you look at his IMDb page, you know, he kind of goes away for a while and then makes something. He's always trying to 
do different things when you look at it. I mean, they're all, they all have these very dark themes. I mean, whether it's like affliction or bringing out the dead, uh, you know, Raging Bull, they're all pretty intense films. But uh, I really, you know, we both really uh, enjoyed this film. It, it's such a, such a good one. I read a really interesting quote from him this week, and he made me reconceptualize Bradley Cooper. He was talking about a film that he directed called Light of Day, which was uh, a Michael J. Fox film with Joan Jett. What? I've never heard of this. Oh, my gosh. I, I remember this movie when I grew up. It was great. Like, Michael J. Fox is in a rock band. It's I mean, I don't know if it's a cool movie, whatever, but they're like a siblings and they're in a band. My, Michael J. Fox is in a rock band with Joan Jett, and I have not heard of this oh, movie? Oh, Amy. I, I grew up on this movie. Okay. Uh, so know. it's so good. Um, so basically, he was talking about Bradley Cooper as a director, and he was like, I believe that the Academy made a giant mistake with him because I directed Joan Jett, and I wasn't able to get the performance out of her that – that Bradley Cooper got out of Lady Gaga. And it clicked to me. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, Bradley Cooper really got a performance out of her. Like Lady Gaga gives a great performance. Again, talking about somebody who is not an actor. We've talked about that a lot. You know, these performances that come through and you forget that the director is very integral to that, you know, and it's, and to discount Bradley Cooper, like, I think I thought about the film as, yes, it's very, it, I mean, I like Star is Born. I have nothing bad to say about it, it's, but it's a simple film to a certain extent. But then he's like, oh, he got this performance, this Academy Award, you know, worthy performance. It really brought it home to me. And I also liked that Paul Schrader had the foresight to kind of compare and contrast that in talking about the nominations. Yeah, that's an interesting phrasing because he's not saying like, Joan Jett sucked or blaming Joan Jett. You know, he's saying I could have done better getting it yeah. out of her. Yeah. I respect that. He's respect like he wants the he wants the the veritas of having a real rock star, but you have to also then make them an actor as well. You know, we've talked about a lot of movies, uh, but there's one movie that we have not talked about, and it's something that our uh our engineer, Devin, brought up to us before the show. And I and, and when he said it, I was like, oh my gosh, totally forgot about this movie. Devin, talk to me about your favorite movie of 2018. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a movie that kind of came out the first part of last year, mm-hmm. and it sort of, I mean, I, I can't imagine it was in theaters for longer than a month or two, and then right. it just sort of swam away. But I went and saw it uh, in the theater, and I absolutely loved it. It was Tully, which was Charlie Theron, you know, yeah. and uh, Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody working together again, I think for the fourth time. I think it's my favorite Jason Reitman film. Yeah. I, I just connected to me in a way, like, it just, every piece fired in the right way. I mean, I love yeah. Young Adult as well. Yeah, I loved Young Adult. That was an amazing movie. I loved Young Adult so much. And I, I thought Tully was so good. Mackenzie Davis is yes. an actress I yes. totally adore. She was wonderful. And when she shows up in Tully, just as this, like, I mean, this is the Mary Poppins movie of the year. Yes. You know, this is the Mary Poppins <laughs> movie that should have existed, where Mary Poppins go. is like, I'll have a threesome if you're tired of sleeping with your husband. Let's do it. <laughs> and, oh my God. And, and by the way, I feel like Charlize, you know, she lost out because I feel like that is an Academy Award winning performance as well. Just I totally a, agree. So, so she, good. She did get a um, Golden Globe. Yes. Which, which I, I was really pleased to see. I was like, oh, good. Someone remembered this movie because yeah. I, I went and saw it and I just loved it. The the nocturnal feeling of it and the way it just sort of like it feels it feels like that. I, I don't have kids, but a lot of my friends do. Yeah. I recognize that vibe of after they arrive, you don't know if it's night or day or and, and the movie capture that perfectly. I, I will say if you're a new parent I, I watch this movie as a new parent and I, I couldn't relate more to it I feel mm-hmm. like the two movies that I that connected to me on a, on a visceral level was Neighbors 1 and <laughs> Tully it, they hit me in a moment where it was just like I am in this vibe right now I'm in the zone and uh, yeah 
It's that, true. And Tolly is also, I think, such a good case of like costume design not getting noticed. Like the mm. outfits that Charlize is wearing in there are just amazing. I mean, I think that the people of the future will look at us and be like, why didn't Charlize Theron win the Oscar every year? The way that we look at it. Right. Yeah. What happened with Glenn Close? All these years, I y'all know. didn't award her. I mean, Charlize has gotten hers, but Charlize should basically be getting one every year and also probably Emma Stone. Uh, I'm I'm all on board. Um, let's get to our final call. Uh, this is uh, one of the stars of Insecure. She was also in a film that came out this year, Night School. Uh, let's hear what Yvonne Orgy's pick for best film of the year is. Hey, I'm Yvonne Orgy, and I gotta say, my favorite film of 2018 has to be Black Panther because it's the only film I saw five times in the theater. Five. Necessary. Everybody else had a three-viewing quota, and I just I wanted to be an overachiever. <laughs> and so I saw it five times. So there it is. Like Nancy, Wakanda forever. You know, I think when we think back of 2018, I think hands down we can say Black Panther is the film of 2018 as far as a film that took over culture, a film that people connected to. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. It was joyful. I mean, watching all the videos from the opening night were amazing. People were coming dressed as their characters from like uh, coming to America. People were getting dressed up in costumes uh, all of all sorts. There's just a joy to that movie and and the cast, like we talked about, is just simply uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I kind of thought like a quarter of our calls would be about Black Panther. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and so I'm surprised that there weren't more, more, more calls. Maybe because it just seems so obvious to a lot of people. Well, I also wonder if it falls into that category of, well, it's a superhero movie. And it's a great superhero movie. But is it worthy of the best film of the year? I definitely think it is the film of 2018. But is that the film that lasts? We, ta- we talked about that. I, I think two things can be true. And I think the results of Black Panther and how it affects the what comes after it will be kind of the most interesting thing. But I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that people maybe feel embarrassed to put a superhero movie forward sometimes as their favorite uh, film. Well, you know who didn't feel embarrassed? Because here's the thing we haven't really brought up yeah. yet, is that every year the AFI themselves, they do a poll voting on the movies of that year to represent that year. They're the top 10. And, uh, you know, I can neither confirm nor deny that I am one of those voters, but Ooh. I can neither maybe confirm nor deny that uh, they, uh, well, well, I'll continue. I'll just, okay. I'll just keep babbling. I'll just keep babbling before I babble myself into trouble. But anyway, they did their own quiet internal voting and they mm-hmm. came out with their top 10 list. And here, what, here is what was on the AFI's top 10 list. And they list there's an alphabetical order, not in any sort of rank. Black Panther, Black Klansman, Eighth Grade, The Favorite, First Reformed, Green Book, if Beale Street Could Talk, Mary Poppins Returns, A Quiet Place, and A Star is Born. And again, I can neither confirm nor deny that I was part of that vote, but I can neither confirm nor deny that I might have or did maybe, I don't know, vote for only four of the things out of the ten. Well, let's talk about Green Book. That's a movie that we haven't talked about. Every other film on this list we've kind of gotten into. Uh, Green Book is a movie that every one of my friend's parents loved, including my own. Uh, yeah, you know, Green Book. I guess we really do have to talk about it. You know, um, the last weekend, um, you know, I do like live radio sometimes yeah. here for this group called like Film Week. Uh, it's uh, every Friday we talk about a bunch of movies and we do a live show for the Oscars every year talking about our picks on stage. And there's like 1,200 people there. And after every category, we do like vote. Like, who do you think should win out mm-hmm. of these five actresses, these best picture nominees? And oh, my God, that crowd of 1,200 
loved fucking Green Book. Yeah. And like I we all of us critics were just on stage looking at each other like, well, okay, okay, right. okay. Well, it's uh, you know, it's interesting point of view because I feel like there is this disconnect. There it it is a movie that I think really connected like Bohemian Rhapsody with a large group of people and you know, and for other people like ourselves, we've had some issues with it. Um, but it's a well-made film. It, you know, it all comes together. And I, I think all my issues with Green Book, and I do have a handful, uh, it's a watchable movie. And I think that that's maybe this benefit and deficit of it. It, it, it doesn't feel clunky. It feels like it's it's saying what it wants to say. And the way it says it is probably where I have my issues with it. Um, but, you know, I imagine that, for at least six months in this upcoming year, every flight we're on, we're going to walk up and down the aisles and half the people will be watching Green Book. Absolutely. And, and you know, just like uh, Jordan Peele was talking about Black Klansman, you know, opening people's eyes to things, I think that this movie does a similar thing. Like, it's, it, it's addressing, you know, race and culture. It's it's tough, though, because, yeah, I have I have issues with it. I don't I, – I wouldn't – I wouldn't be putting this on my AFI list in the future. Well, I but will, it's probably yeah. the argument that it probably would be the one that would get on the AFI list, right? Oh, well, I will say that like part of my favorite thing about Green Book is that at least it at least let me spend ninety minutes of my life going down the rabbit hole of of really researching Nick Vallelonga, yes, the man who uh, co-wrote the script for Green Book, the man who Viggo Mortensen is his dad. That's his family. It was his story. He knew all about this story growing up. And Nick Vallelonga is just fascinating. I had to interview him, um, and he talked a lot about, like, moving to L.A. in the 90s and being a bouncer and getting to know all the studio chiefs that way because they wanted to get into his club. So he got to meet all the agents and the managers, and he was real well-connected because of that. Um, Nick Vallelonga also, you know, of course, like, tweeting about the Twin Towers. You all know about that. We'll let that go. But Nick Vallelonga, you know, if, if we're talking about, like, careers that can have a longevity – uh, well, Nick Vallelonga has already announced his next movie that he'll make after Green Book. It's called That's Amore with an exclamation yes. point. Uh, it's about a man who works at a pizza parlor. Uh, he falls in love with a girl, and the girl's name is Patty Amore. And I uh, will say, you know what? I'm going to go watch That's Amore. I'm well, in. I'm, uh, in. I'm in. And you know what? Uh, if you want to kind of hear Don Shirley, who is the character that uh, Marshal Ali plays in the film, the, the tapes are out there. The Green Book tapes are out there. And if you type in like Green Book tapes, the Green Book tapes are out there. <laughs> they're actually pretty interesting. I listened to them. They were on Deadline um, uh, a couple weeks ago. and uh, But just type in Green Book tapes and you can actually hear these people uh, from their actual recordings. And that's interesting. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so Amy, uh, the Oscars are this weekend. We're going to be doing a special Oscar recap show. And the cool thing about our Academy Award show is that we're going to be live streaming it next Monday. We'll be announcing it, uh, on our unspooled Twitter and we will also retweet it on our Twitters. Uh, so you can follow along with our live recap of the Oscar show, which is going to be brutal for me because I'm working, uh, I'm shooting a movie, and we're shooting nights the night of the Oscars. So I'm going to have to shoot all night, watch it, and then come and talk to you. But I'm excited. There's a heavy metal song about that, like shoot all night, <laughs> Oscars in the day. <laughs> What's you know? I think the one the one um, category I'm really looking forward to is director because I think it can really go any way. Um, you know, I think that obviously uh, Alfonso Cuarón is like definitely probably leading the charge but the way the academy goes you never know and the same way for best picture like i feel like it's 
you could tell me any of those and I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be keeping my eye on uh, seeing if Roma wins picture and foreign language, like how that would play out. So, you know, like would it win one and not the other if it wins best picture and not foreign language? Wow, what is that? Like, I guess it would tell me a little bit about like how the voting sort of is going to shake down internally. Because when that happens for us, like at the critics group, we like rewrite. I don't know. It's, yeah. this, this may be like boring inside baseball talk, but it's something I'm really curious about. I do have to say, I've kind of come around this year where I am now quietly and personally actively and maybe evilly rooting for either Green Book or Bohemian Rhapsody to win. Wow. Just because this Oscars has been such a fucking shit show. Oh, it's um, been a mess. I was sorry for my language, but also not sorry because it has been such a fucking shit show. Yeah. Oh, uh, with all the categories moving around and the host and everything that I feel like this Oscars deserves a Green Book or Bohemian Rhapsody winner. It just does. So that it almost serves as like an asterisk where we look back in the in the history books and we say, well, that was a fucked up year. I will, you know, and I will say, but this is a year that there is no clear favorite. And Roma kind of is, is in the last couple of weeks, you're kind of taking a little bit of the reins. But I would argue that if you polled most of America, they probably haven't even seen Roma, even though it's been open to them. And probably more people have seen Roma than most because of the Netflix. But it's, it, it's a weird year. I don't feel like there's like, I don't feel like there's people rooting for things this year. I, that's at least what I feel right now going into it. Like, I know we're coming up on Oscar season, but it doesn't feel like there's an energy to it. And I actually feel like there's an energy in the upset. You know, this past week, Bo Burnham won Best Screenplay at the WGA Awards, beating out all these bigger, you know, writers and directors. And I think there's a... He uh, wasn't even nominated for Best Original Screenplay for 8th grade. Which is crazy. And I think there's such an energy to that. Like, I think we really want to see an underdog this year. And I wonder if that will translate... Uh, I mean, I God knows. I want to see chaos. I just want Let's chaos. Let's see chaos. Give me chaos. Get chaos us chaos. Wins. Well, we'll see you next Monday for our live stream and uh, our episode drop, uh, which is a recap of the Oscars. Thank you for joining us for these last three weeks as we've kind of gone through so many films. I hope we've given you a couple more to put on your list. And, uh, and you know, I hope we've, like, changed your mind about Bohemian Rhapsody. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> if you liked it. Wow. <laughs> Wow, you are the champion, Paul. Okay. <laughs> Today's show was brought to you by MUBI, okay? The Sundance Film Festival is taking over MUBI with a selection of exciting films, from documentaries to a 90s queer comedy to James Gray's Little Odessa. I don't know if you've seen Little Odessa. Little Odessa is awesome, and you're going to want to watch it right now on movie. Little Odessa is a movie about, like, a hitman. It's got Russian families in Brighton Beach. Ooh, I love it. It has Tim Roth. Everybody loves Tim Roth. And it has Vanessa Redgrave, amazing actresses. Like, James Gray, this is a guy who has done so many amazing, wonderful, strange, bizarre films, a lot of them with Joaquin Phoenix. Go back to where they all began, and you can do that right now on Mubi. Right. So check it out today on Mubi, and try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash unspooled. That's Mubi dot com slash unspooled. It's a curated way of watching films. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> 
Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.